And the rest of you uh, can turn in your Bibles to 3rd John. The book of 3rd John. Yeah. Hey, thank you. Good to be back. Just real short. Yeah. yeah. Was he gone? That's a good question. 3rd uh, John. The book of 3rd John uh, should be marked because we were in 2nd John pretty recently. I'm going to read the entire book of the Bible. Buckle up. Uh, you can follow along in your own Bibles uh, if you'd like. I'd highly recommend it. Book of Third John, starting in verse 1. It says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his namesake taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Pray with me, please. Lord, we uh, we gratefully receive this this food, <laughs> this this good nourishment of your word. I pray that um, that you, Holy Spirit, would present it to us in uh, a digestible form, uh, that we'd be able to receive what your spirit needs or what your church needs, what your spirit intends. Um, bless us. Bless us with spiritual understanding of spiritual things. Bless us with insight into even even the simple truths that we might look over um, and the deep truths uh, that we might miss. Uh, bless us. Bless your church uh, with your word. Let the spirit that inspired this text also apply it to us so that we can look more like Christ. We ask that for his glory. Amen. Amen. Um, so a couple weeks ago, we did 2 John all in one go. And one of the real simple truths of that, um, of that sermon, of that book, what we saw was that the church is your family. You know, John's writing to a, a, a woman who has kids in the church. He talks about, you know, discipling children in the church or your children. And then he says the, the children of your sister greet you. So, so we just saw that like John's relationship with the church and the relationship with, with family was was hard to distinguish. Is it, is it the church or family? Well, yes. The answer is yes. And, and here at the end of, 
of this letter to uh, one of John's friends, his beloved Gaius. He says, the friends greet you and greet the friends by name. So if you wanted to couple this up with 2 John in one way, you could say 2 John shows us that the church is, is family. And 3 John, one of the things 3 John shows is that the church is your friends. Uh, and there's only 14 verses here. Uh, 2 John was only 13 verses, but 3 John actually has fewer words. So this is the shortest book if you're, if you're keeping track. Um, and, and of course, students of the Bible will tell you uh, that the great attention and care should be taken to the genre of the book that you are reading, right? Psalms being poetry, you read that a little bit differently than Acts, which is history. Uh, the letters of the New Testament are different than the Gospels, and, and so on. You notice this when you're reading your Bible, I'm sure. Uh, but when they list the genres, usually they just clump the letters all into one big pile. And all the epistles of Paul and Peter and John and James and Jude, like, what kind of books are those? Well, those are letters. Those are all just letters. One, and the one guy who wrote Hebrews and forgot to sign his name, all those, all those are, there are letters. But when you read 3 John, like we just did, especially if you read 3 John after, say, reading Romans, you know that these are two different kinds of writing. You know, you read Galatians and then you read 3 John and you might feel disoriented. These aren't the same kind of book. There's, these two things are not the same. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, these epistles get a lot more time than a letter like 3 John. And I think, and the reason is, is more than just that they're longer. The purpose of those letters is to expound the glories of Christ and to thoroughly explain in, in careful detail the mechanics and the repercussions of salvation. That's, we live in those books, right? But what about 3 John? 3 John's a thank you note. It's a different kind of letter. And I've had people uh, truly ask me, you know, honestly, why is why is this one why is this one in the Bible? Like, was it a bookmark that just got put in and accidentally copied with the rest of it? And I and I think underneath that question is the uncomfortable realization that this book doesn't just doesn't belong with the rest of them. It's different. But the Holy Spirit, in His infinite and eternal, gentle wisdom, knew that our scriptures, which are profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness, it, it needed the theology hammered out in these books, and it needed a thank you note too. So I would say do notice that this book isn't Romans, but don't judge it like it's Romans. Instead, come to the letter on its own terms, thanking God that he feeds us with a variety of spiritual foods, and, and, and that in our scriptures we have an inspired 14 verse thank you note to highlight some and snapshot some some insights into the relationship of, of some of the people in the church in John's day. And just as we're dedicating our whole service to this one short overlooked book. So in 3 John, we see some virtues uh, that are simple and humble and overlooked now. But here in 3 John, they're elevated and given their proper place. Virtues like hospitality. This is a big theme in 3 John. Um, and just welcoming strangers. Now, of course, there are doctrines in this book. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, teaching. But it's not presented necessarily like Paul would present doctrine or even how John presents it in his gospel or in 1 John. Instead of being presented with a list of truths, we have an opportunity to look at the truth through a window, uh, a window into the house of this guy named Gaius. We're looking into his specific home and seeing the gospel in action. Now, the themes of this book are these, spiritual and physical health. We see that in the greeting in verse 2. We see the power of 
faithful hospitality, starting in verse 5. And then a warning about this guy who misuses and abuses his authority and, and uh, neglects hospitality. This guy, Diotrephes. Mm, not good. They're given a warning, right? A warning is given. Wherever there's a virtue that is promoted and, and ought to be pursued, there will be people who will capitalize on those virtues in others. Where there are generous people, there will be greedy people ready to take advantage of them. John says, keep being hospitable, keep being generous, but do look out for the people who who abuse their authority um, and who may abuse your hospitality even. And where there's a virtue of unity and humility, there are those who become divisive because of their arrogance. Again, we see this in Diotrephes too. Um, And then he says, I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to see you and we're going to get together and we're going to talk about some stuff. That's the letter. That's that's third John. Let's pray. No. Um, so, So let's take it verse by verse and enjoy the good nourishment that God has given us in, in his word. It says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. I don't know anything about Gaius, so I can't share any interesting tidbits about him. But you should recognize a very John-like sentiment here. We see the inseparable union of love and truth. The letter of 1 John was full of this, right? You saw this. The gospel of John was full of these ideas. It's almost uh, not enough to say that love and truth are two sides of the same coin. Even that makes them too far apart. For John, love is truth. Truth is love. He's the guy who records Jesus as saying, I'm the truth, and then he writes, God is love. You really can't have one without the other. John can't imagine a kind of truth that wouldn't be loving. He actually says, if you, you, know, if you don't love your brother, well, that, that's antichrist. Ooh, that hits. If you say you're in the truth and you hate your brother, you're a liar. That's not truth. Lying isn't truth. And the love of God is not in you. You can't have one without the other. If you're lacking one, you're lacking the other. So John says to his friend Gaius, he says, I love you in truth, because that's the only way to love. For John, this is intentionally redundant. And, and look at his, his redundancies here. He writes, beloved, uh, and we're 11 words in, or 12, 12 words in, 11 in Greek, and John uses the word love three times. Okay. So it's like, okay, all right, we get it. This is John. We've met before. Yes, he says this a lot. He says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Okay, so this first bit about prospering in all things and being in good health, this, was, this could have been a, a pretty common greeting. Uh, it may be one of the niceties that you might find in, in any number of polite letters from one friend to another. But it's the only time we see it in Scripture. And since we believe it is inspired and profitable for doctrine, reproof, etc., we don't want to just skip over it. So I'm going to do the opposite thing and probably spend too much time on it. Okay? John wishes Gaius three kinds of blessings. He wishes him blessings and prosperity in all things, prosperity in health, and prosperity in soul. But to be very, very clear, he prioritizes these blessings. And in verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, which is a matter of, of the soul. We can get uncomfortable talking about money sometimes, and we can get confused in talking about things and possessions sometimes. And one of the reasons for that uh, may be because it's not as black and white uh, as we we sometimes want it to be. Uh, there are, are those, and always will be those, 
who are quick to misquote First Timothy and say money's the root of all evil. And they're just really confident that the rich are wicked and the poor are the good guys, and that's it. Um, usually these are not rich people saying this. But in the Bible, you see that there's righteous rich people and unrighteous rich people and righteous poor people and unrighteous poor people. And you've got some of them that play more than one part, like Job, who's righteous and rich and then righteous and poor and then righteous and rich again. Like Jesus, who, you know, set aside heavenly riches and became poor and then now has returned and inherited all his father's things. Um... And so you, you've got lots of righteous poor people in Scripture, Mary and Joseph. We're going to be looking at them uh, this Christmas when we do a little Advent series. Um, and then you have, you have unrighteous poor. You have the unrepentant in Jerusalem at the time of Jeremiah, the people in Israel in 2 Kings, where we've been in our midweek Bible study, that are judged for their sin. You know, their cities are besieged. They, they're so poor they resort to cannibalism and still don't repent. A message on hospitality, and we already found our way to cannibalism. Church is fun, right? Church is just fun. Okay, so money can be hard. Like, we're, we're not, we don't know exactly how to handle it sometimes. Health can be the same way. John says, he's writing to his friend, he says, I hope you prosper in your health. I, I wish good health on you. Praying for your health. Um, now, obviously, you guys know you can't fall into the health and wealth sort of gospel that says it's never God's will for you to be sick. We reject that wholesale. God has many servants. Some of them are ugly. One of them is sickness. Um, sickness can be, can be caused by sin in a general, or it is in a general sense, Adam's sin. And in a specific sense, sometimes sickness can be because of an individual sin and repentance will bring healing. Sometimes that is the case. Other times that is not the case. Paul doesn't tell Timothy to repent for his stomach's sake. He tells him to take a little wine, which I know for many people is a lot more palatable than repentance. But just like, just like wealth, right? There's, there's righteous, healthy people. There's unrighteous, healthy people. There's righteous, unhealthy people. There's unrighteous, unhealthy people. But what we see from John here, the, the gist of what he's saying, and this probably common greeting, is God does want good for you. He wants the best for you. And it is right for us to wish and to pray for the success of one another, our friends that we love. Um, and I, I pray for each one of you. I pray for all of you and the chairs you're sitting in, which may seem weird, but just, just lean back into that blessing, okay? You're all sitting, sitting down. And, and I pray for you that you would have success in the good things that you put your hand to. And I pray for your good health. These are good things. Not being bankrupt, not being an invalid. Those are things that we, we'd want when we say those are good things, but they're not the best things. They'll never be the best thing. The prosperity that John cares for most and the prosperity that we ought to care for most is a spiritual prosperity. His greatest joy is not that he hears that his children don't have cuts and bruises. His greatest prosperity is not that they are investing wisely. His greatest joy is that his children walk in the truth. This is a perfect opportunity for some self-examination. Now, I believe John lays out some very clear priorities here. Uh, I believe John uh, ranks things in order of value, spiritual good, and then beneath that, physical good. And, and of course, this is the line, this is in line with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. And you can maybe in parenthetical statements say, you know, where age wreaks havoc on bones and skin and organs and sickness comes in the flu, etc. He says, but, but instead of all that, putting your hope in those things, lay it for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves do not break in and steal. 
where your new tent doesn't wear out, we might add. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Simple question. Are physical riches or spiritual riches more important, more substantial, more to be sought after? Which one's better? Spiritual riches. Correct. We're batting a thousand. Heavenly riches. We know this, right? We know that. What are ways we can express this belief? What are ways that we can walk in this truth then? Turning the theoretical belief into actual practice. I would say generosity, giving. In this book, we see hospitality, laying up treasure in heaven. Those are some ways. Um, Next question, a little bit harder, hopefully not by much, just as obvious. Is physical health or spiritual health more important, more substantial, more to be sought after? It's spiritual health. And we know this. And in the extreme scenarios, extreme scenarios are easier. Um, you know, we, we might imagine these, these uh, scenarios where we're all on the same page. You know, someone has a gun to your head. I would say that's hazardous to your health. And they say, you're Jesus or your life. And, and you say, take my life. The real one's in heaven anyway. I read the book. Like, that's, that's easier. That's simpler, maybe. It's, it's black and white. It's, it's clear. I'll give you another example that will probably seem like it's, it's on the opposite end of the spectrum, and it is. So you have like Christian martyrdom, coliseums, gun against your head moments on this side, and then way over here, like way, way over there, you've got children's ministry. Okay, and, and uh, if you are asking how the two are related, then you've never served in children's ministry, obviously. <laughs> um, but but if, you help, if you help with Sunday school, if you help with Awana, and I want you to, I really do. We always need help with Awana. It's a beautiful ministry. But if you help with Awana through, through the season consistently, you're going to get a cold. You will. Those kids sneeze on everything. Okay, they, are, they, just, they are germ factories. You will get sick. This was actually a very real decision for me when we started doing Awana nine years or so ago. Uh, because as you know, I've had a few bouts with an autoimmune disease, which I'm thank, I, thank, I am thankfully rid of for a good long time now um, because of the prayers of the saints. Praise God. Uh, But as someone who has had a compromised immune system, I was told by my doctors that I absolutely could not allow myself to get sick. Getting sick could mean getting worse sick, Uh, which could mean the swift deterioration of certain internal organs that I'm rather attached to. Now, I I don't want to exaggerate at all, okay? Fed to lions over here, getting the sniffles, which might mean other things over there, okay? They're not the same. It's just an illustration. But if you serve in children's ministry, your chances of getting the cold are very, very high. I'm thankful to say this is a very easy decision for many of you. You look at that and say, yeah, it's worth it. Yeah, I might, you know what? I might get sick, but they get Jesus. So I'll do that. So on on the, the other side of a long, long spectrum, you've got martyrdom, and we say, yes, that's the right thing to do. Spiritual health trumps physical health. And in the middle, it gets tricky. Somewhere between those two things on that, that continuum, it gets confusing, as I'm sure anyone living in the year of our Lord 2021 knows full well. Our, our minds fill up quickly with, well, what about those kind of questions? What role does caution play? We've had to figure that out individually, collectively, and have disagreed and moved on. But our primary concern will always be, must always be, spiritual health of an individual and of a church. The other things, too. Yeah, all of them. They're all good things, but the priorities have to be clear. There are spiritual goods that are to be sought after. Um, there are spiritual goods that are to be sought after even at the expense of material goods and even physical health. 
Now, it's easy to dwell on the extremes that are clear. A missionary goes to lepers, we say, God bless him. Every missionary has weird stories about the food that gave him indigestion. God bless him. Um, but that this room is full of Christians who are part of the body, who are called to pursue spiritual good, sometimes at great expense. And, and some of those spiritual goods will be more expensive than you thought they should be. <laughs> And each one of us needs to spend time examining ourselves and seeing if we have our priorities straight. I'm not going to do it for you. You and Jesus need to do this together. But I'll give you a tool, a method, perhaps, of determining where you stand and what, um, what, what perhaps maybe needs changing. If the health of your body, your physical body, if the health of your body could immediately and perfectly represent the health of your soul, what would you see? when you look in the mirror. There would be people who haven't eaten in a year, and it would show. There would be amputated limbs. That's gross. A Christian out of fellowship is a member of the body who has been amputated, and it affects everyone. It hurts everyone. It's noticeable. Now look at the blessing John would wish on his children. Prosperity in all things, yes please. And in health, yes please. And in soul, which can be expensive, we talked about that in Second John, right? But his greatest joy, his greatest joy is when his children are walking in truth. And again, for John, that's walking in love. And as you pray through some of these things, the things rattling around in your brain right now that the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind, considering these things, wrestling with these things, well, then bring them to Jesus and think about these things out of a desire for the truth and in an attitude of love. Uh, I can assure you that I'm, I'm saying these things out of the same desire that our church would walk in love towards one another, towards our world, and in truth, caring for the spiritual above physical or material, which can be hard. Now, we spent a long time on the greeting, and I said we would do this whole book in one go. And it's a good thing we just talked about pursuing spiritual good at the expense of your health, because this is going to be so long, you probably won't have blood flow to your legs by the end of it. So let's, it's good for you. It's good for you. Just stay with me. Okay, verse 5. Let's go to verse 5. Beloved, that's you guys. That's us. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. You have borne witness of your love for the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. This is a compliment for Gaius. Uh, the good that Gaius had done that invited this short note is his hospitality. And really, if you, if you boil it down, it's his faithfulness. He ministers to both people in his church who he knows well and people from other churches that he doesn't know well. And these people have seen and testified that Gaius loves people and they want to talk about it. They talk about it at church, and news has traveled to John about how well Gaius loves people. People come and stay at his house, and they thought, people need to know, this guy's fantastic at welcoming people into his home and then sending them on their way. And verse 7 says that the people uh, he, he welcomed were, were uh, on mission. They were traveling evangelists, perhaps, missionaries, apostles even, church planters. It says they went forth for his name's sake. And then, then specifies, you know, they took nothing from the Gentiles. The Gentiles here would, would mean out the outsiders. You know, there's the true Israel of God, which is kind of language they use for the church, which included Gentiles at this time. And then the Gentiles, the outsiders, people outside the church. In other words, these missionaries were not just beggars. It would have actually been common 
at this time for self-proclaimed prophets and, or preachers of various cults and religions of the day to take collections from the general public, maybe in exchange for some, you know, voodoo kind of blessing. Uh, and sort of, sort of a, you know, I mean, a GoFundMe approach, but a little worse. The Christian missionaries didn't do this. They didn't go out and just ask everybody for money. They went to the church, like Maddie Mutt did. They went to fellow believers who from the beginning, from Pentecost, were known for having all things in common. So they wouldn't go to those outside the church because in doing so, they, were, they would be confessing, we can't take care of our own. Now, I know there's lots of experts at fundraising. I'm not one of them. Uh, and everyone knows a little bit about how that works. But I'll, I'll have you know that the early church didn't do fundraising like maybe you've seen fundraising done. There weren't car washes for reasons I hope are glaringly obvious. Um, but there were... There are basically two kinds of fundraising. There's two kinds of fundraising, and, and there's asking for money from the church. Freely give what you have determined in your heart. That's it. Paul asks for money for other churches. The church gives it. Um, he doesn't ask unbelievers for money. He asks the church for money, and then people give it. That's the whole story. No bake sales. Or, second method, Paul went out and got a job. He went and, and made tents. Those are some biblical ways of supporting ministry. I'm not saying this like it's a dogma. I buy candy from kids when they sell it because they're kids and it's candy. But in general, in general, usually I prefer it like what we see here. And I think most people do. And I think, I think God honors this kind of fundraising where you have a missionary pitch a entirely astronomical figure out to a small congregation in a small town and say, give it all, and you do. I, I think that honors the Lord. You know, I think that's God's faithfulness, and we, we give praise to the Lord for that. Um, we support some missionaries, but we don't ask any of them for magazine subscriptions in return for what we give them. John is commending Gaius for caring for the servants of God, who are on a trip of some kind for the cause of the kingdom, and he commends him with the word in verse 5 that we all want to hear when we meet Jesus. John says, you do faithfully. This, for Gaius, would be a foretaste of glories divine. When he would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. There's no evidence here that Gaius was a teacher, an apostle, or anything like that. He just let missionaries stay in his spare room, and he gave them a good breakfast. And he did it faithfully. If you want, if you're looking for the one direct imperative, the command from 3 John that you could take home, memorize, and know, and know this is the Lord speaking to me, this is the order, here's my action item, I would recommend taking the description of Gaius in verse 5 as an example for you. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do. Just that part. Do faithfully whatever you do. So that one day it can be said to you, you do faithfully whatever you do. Verse 9 says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Um, here's the, a strong contrast, right? We've got Gaius. He's a good guy. He's faithful. And then we have selfishness on the other side, um, on the dark side. Faithfulness is a remedy for selfishness. Faithful service. Faithfulness is keeping your word. Faithfulness to the, to the scriptures. These are safeguards against the meism that our hearts tend towards. 
Um, Diotrephes is an, is an example of a selfishness that pits itself against faithful, faithfulness. Maybe even a selfishness that grows out of faithlessness. Now, Diotrephes was a leader in the church. He was a pastor or an elder. We know that he was someone of some measure of authority because of how he abused that authority. He had the authority to put people out of the church. He's excommunicating, excommunicating people. That's serious, and it shows that Diotrephes was a leader with authority and no idea uh, what that means. <laughs> He's not a good guy. There's something that Diotrephes doesn't do that he should, and then there's something that he does do that he shouldn't. And then there's an underlying reason for both. So we've got a sin of omission. That's omitting what should be done. He doesn't do what he should do. James says that's sin. To him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin, James 2.10. So that's, he doesn't receive the brethren, including John himself. Um, he's not hospitable. That's a sin that John holds against him. It says he does not receive us. Verse 10 says he himself does not receive the brethren. Gaius is hospitable. Diotrephes is not. Gaius is a good friend. Diotrephes is a bad friend. Just as hospitality was seen as a first-rate virtue and should be viewed as such again, so the lack of hospitality was seen as a grievous sin. But Diotrephes doesn't stop at just keeping his doors closed. He's also excommunicating those who wanted to welcome John and his associates. This seems really extreme. And there's obviously some sort of personal issues here that we're not you know, aware of. But he is clearly drawing a line between himself, his church, and the apostolic tradition that John was a part of. Yikes. And in including, included in this list of his sin of commission, he, he's trash-talking the apostles. He says, prating against us with malicious words, or as the ESV says it so well, talking wicked nonsense. He's just talking wicked nonsense. Say it with a Boston accent if you can, it'll mean totally different things. Um, but he's talking wicked nonsense against us. So Diotrephes has made his position very clear. He's drawn a line. He has publicly denounced John, of all people, and those with him. He has forbidden those under his authority from associating with those guys. I think Diotrephes would have absolutely loved social media. He would have been good at it. Uh, when, what would drive a pastor to such extremes? I mean, we're witnessing in 3 John the downfall of a Christian leader. How did this happen? Verse 9 tells us he loves to have the preeminence. Oh, this is no small sin. In his arrogance, Diotrephes was revealing himself to be the antithesis of Christ, who, as you know, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant bondservant. That's, that was Diotrephes' example to follow, and he's, he's going the opposite way. Diotrephes had succumbed to the ancient satanic temptation of pride. And this love of preeminence, this love of being honored, being held in high esteem, of taking the first place, led him to be defensive and, and maybe even paranoid. Camp John here. Traveling preachers, visiting from the apostles, all those people could be threats to my empire that I'm building. My kingdom come, my will be done. Having John come in and preach humility, that would really cramp his style, don't you think? It may be reading between the lines, but it looks like Diotrephes, by developing this selfish culture that insulates from accountability, he's making a cult. If he's not there yet, he's on the way. 
I'm sure you can see this. There's a strong, aggressive leader who forbids fellowship with any who are on the outside. Ooh, that's not good. And please realize that John identifies this community as the church. And next year, we're going to be starting 1 Corinthians in January, which is, among other things, an airtight refutation of the idea that the early church was this halo-wearing utopia. Um, but, but we can see it here, too. You don't have to go to Corinthians. You can see it here that the church had problems. And John, it should be noted, takes the high road in addressing the problems here. He says, I'll deal with it in person. I'll, I'll talk to him when I get there. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort it out. I'm going to talk to people. When I get there, we'll hash this out, presumably face-to-face. I'll talk to him. John is going to go Matthew 18 on this guy. And it, it, seems that, it seems that John may hold on to the idea that there's some hope of repentance and reconciliation. This is not a letter where John excommunicates Diotrephes. Maybe that letter existed somewhere, but it's not in the scripture, probably for a good reason. All John is saying is, there's, this is a big problem, and I'm going to deal with it when I get there, in person, the right way to handle these things. So in this letter, you have a church that is healthy, it, and part of it, you know, Gaius. It proves its health by its hospitality, and you also have an unhealthy church. Could have been the same congregation, for all we know. The same, same neighborhood. They knew Gaius knew Diotrephes, so it's the same, you know, general area. And you have this, you know, borderline heretical, cultish kind of thing. And, and the healthy part of the church is marked by its hospitality. And the unhealthy church is, has the identifying marker of a lack of hospitality. Again, if you're looking for application here, it's right on the surface. We don't have to guess what to do with this kind of information. Look at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil or what is good. It's like, there's a good guy in this story. You should be like him. There's a bad guy in this story. Don't be like him. It says, he who does, does good is of God, but he who does not, he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Here's another guy we don't know anything about. Could have been the guy bringing the letter from John to Gaius, maybe. Uh, but John brings it up, reminding us that there are still plenty of good guys. Still plenty of good guys. It would be easy to start you know, getting really stirred up about this Diotrephes guy and spend all day worrying about him and his bad habits and campaigning against him. And Gaius maybe could have received that kind of message. But John says, your first order of business, my beloved Gaius, is just, quite simply, don't be like him. Just be like Demetrius. For every Diotrephes, there's a Gaius and a Demetrius and a John. Don't be discouraged. Be committed to imitate what is good. Because in doing good, he says you're of God. You, you meet God. This has been the message we've been dealing with since the upper room in John, right? Wash feet, because that's where Jesus is. Let's wrap this up. Verse 13 says, I had many things to write but I did not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Once again, John knows, like you do, that nothing can replace face-to-face -face relationship. Real, physical, personal encounters. Whether it's getting together to celebrate or whether it's getting together to be corrected for rebuke, personal is better. Either way. Friends know this about each other. Friends want to be together. And John says, we're a church of friends. And Gaius could know, even in the face of a guy like Diotrephes who's throwing his weight around, he got plenty of friends. Read him by name, meet him face to face. 
Again, the big point that I shared two weeks ago in 2 John was that the church is family. In 3 John, we see that the church is friends. And friends care about each other. They, they love each other in truth. Real friends care about their friends in health and all things, but especially in spiritual things. Friends open their homes to one another, receive one another, and help each other out if someone needs a few bucks. Friends do that. Friends don't let friends end up like diatrophies. He isolated himself. Probably didn't have a lot of friends. He's not welcoming people that want to stay with him. He spoke nonsense. He loved to be first. Don't imitate that. Imitate what is good. Be a servant. And doing what is good, that is, is, you know, washing feet, opening your home, being hospitable, being generous, and doing the works of Christ, you become a co-laborer with Christ and you have fellowship with the God who washes feet, who makes breakfast for his friends on the beach and who finds value in a simple thank you note. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is good. Your word is rich. And your church is both good and needy. Oh, we are needy, Lord. We need your help. We need your spirit. We need your guidance. We need light and more light. And we're asking you to give us these things because we know how generous you are. We know how, how much you want to make us into the church that resembles a spotless bride. So I pray that we would grow in these virtues, that we would be protected from these vices, that in all things, Lord, we would have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and we'd be eager to be with him, we'd be eager to be with him in, in servants' clothes, washing feet, making breakfast, maybe even writing a thank you note. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and stand up. You want to come sing with me? All right. Thanks. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father.